Shakala. It means holy worship. Join me, your host, Robert Randall, as we delve into biblical instrumentation and music history to discover the sounds behind the words of our Savior, Yeshua Messiah. development from the energetic system at a the time they said they said well you know it's nice to be forbidden having 11 strings because the Nippur text says so and why not try with 11 strings it, it enlarges our span a bit more and of course it will allow for m- more modes to be played within a system as indeed with 11 strings we have the first mode two three we have which is the mode of F. And here, mode of G, and then mode of A, and the mode of B. So, effectively, 11 strings allows for having four modes within. So it's a very interesting uh, uh, instrument. but. These modes are with seven notes, and this tends to indicate that this style of music based on the NA accord was a transition period between the nine-note system and the seven-note system, which was adopted uh, effectively uh, and completely not before the first millennium BC. Now, going back to the ancient tuning, where we have within the nine notes the following scale, To generate the next mode would be to locate the tritone. Here it is. And then to correct this note by tuning it up a semitone higher. And then we have the following mode. And so on. So from the mode, the original mode, they would tune, they would correct a note of the tritone in order to generate the next note. which is your primary manuscript is certainly Old Babylonian in date. We can tell this from the script, which is a well-established matter. We have, there are many other Old Babylonian tablets from Ur. So this is certainly the first half of the second millennium BC. I think you can take that for granted. 
Yes, that's great. And uh, the, this other text, which is called UET 7126, the lexical text. The lexical text. Yes, that's a different matter. That is part of a lexical series. And one of the wonderful things about ancient Mesopotamian scholars is they compiled these dictionaries, lists of words, lists of uh, grammatical points, lists of god names and so forth, which are very useful for us. And there was one particular series called Nabnitu, which was, in fact, probably got underway about the, the last few centuries of the second millennium BC, maybe about 1200 BC, something like that, they started to make lists of uh, Sumerian and Akkadian words under the name Nabnitu. And there are 32 tablets that make up this whole composition. And the last one is the one which is most important for music because the scribes who compiled it took the old Sumerian words for the names of the strings on this instrument and translated them into their Babylonian equivalents. Because the cuneiform writing, as you know, sometimes has, uh, covers text in the Sumerian language, sometimes in the Babylonian language, and you can't tell when you look at the cuneiform signs which language it is until you read it. But with a dictionary like this, you have an example of a scholarly mind who wants to make order out of all sorts of disparate material. And in this particular case, they take the old Sumerian string names in order and they give the Babylonian equivalents, the two languages in a bilingual list. Do we have evidence of an earlier text in Sumerian only with these terms? Uh, there is a little fragment which has the same list on it, which, judging by the script, is older, probably from the end of the second millennium. You see, the big one from Ur, the most important lexical text, was probably written in about the 7th century BC. The manuscript itself is what we call Neo-Babylonian, so it comes out of a school maybe after the fall of Assyria from the time of Nebuchadnezzar or later, where some scholarly, in some scholarly context, this text was being recopied again. So the manuscript from Ur, which has come to us, which we've been studying, itself was written in the first millennium. But because of this little fragment, we can be sure that the content, the actual ideas and the words on it, come from a slightly earlier period. And this is nothing surprising, because the whole emphasis of cuneiform scholarship was to preserve learning from a previous period, to preserve it exactly, to pass it on, to copy it, to transmit it. And the musical information which we have now from these scattered pieces is part of this program where things were established, they were understood, they were written down, and then they were preserved and copied and copied and copied and copied. So we've been, we've been talking about these manuscripts as manuscripts, and of course they are wonderful from the cuneiformist's point of view as important resources. When it actually comes to appraising them in terms of their importance for the history of music, they are colossal, because what we have uh, uniquely, and what has become clear perhaps for the first time quite recently, is we have archaeological evidence for the instruments themselves, we have images of them, we have graphic representations of them, and we also have, as it were, living texts written by musical minds about this material. So it means that a musicologist has the wonderful opportunity to combine an instrument, a reconstruction of an instrument, an understanding of its detail with a text written from that culture which has survived to us, where the two can be combined to produce real understanding for the first time of what this music really was like. It all started, you see, I've been reminded, I should say this, it all started in 1960. What happened in 1960? 
when it was for the first time that a tablet mentioning musical terms popped up in the University of Philadelphia. Professor Landsberger, uh, who was teaching uh, Assyriology to a young a student called Anne Kilmer, had his drawer there and he opened it, you know, oh, listen, uh, my dear, here's a tablet, you know, have a crack at it during the weekend. And Anne Kilmer, as it was done at the time, took the tablet, put it in her pocket, went home. Today you couldn't do that at all, I mean, you would be shot immediately, uh, and perhaps worse. And, and she looked at the tablet, and there was one sign which straightway attracted the attention of the young student. So, this young scholar found a series of signs with numbers, and she straightway, because there were only seven numbers written, and because she played the piano when she was about five or six years old, for six months or so, she said, ah, that's music. And it must be a heptatonic scale. Because we've got seven degrees, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And it must be ascending. Here's the text in question. It's called CBS 10996, because CBS is the catalogue of Babylonian section, and 10996 is the field number. Uh, Kilmer decided straight away that these numbers were, of course, the evidence straight away of a system which was heptatonic, as I've said to you, and that it was ascending. And of course, that it was equal temperament. <laughs> Why not, after all? Because we all sing in equal temperament. Uh, she didn't know much about music at all. And the problem is that her teacher, Bino Landsberger, knew absolutely nothing about music, although he was an excellent essayologist. And she presented the work to Samuel Noah Kramer, who was a super authority, uh, especially with the flop tablet and other texts, who was the most eminent sumerologist up to this day. And these two guys had no knowledge about uh, music at all. And they said, if Kilmer, if Anne, find that this is uh, heptatonic ascending, she must be right. And therefore, on the authority of Kramer and Landsberger, she was put in the press as a leading discovery. <laughs> you know, 3,000 years BC ago, they had a heptatonic system. Uh, and it was ascending, you know. But this is not enough. You wouldn't know all as, uh, as musicologists or music historians or having anything to do with music. That you, in order to prove that, you need more. So, uh, she decided that the Babylonian music system was set to the system was ascending, the intervals listed were harmonic, they were a tuning system, there were catalog of intervals given to composers for their creations. How the hell can you derive this from the tablet in question? You cannot. The interesting thing is that she decided at number three that the intervals listed were harmonic. Let us play together. This never happened in the whole history of it. This, this happens much later. In order to have these uh, intervals played together, we have to wait uh, for the Ecole Notre Dame, you know, and not before. The vertical reading of music 
is a thing which doesn't come spontaneously. It is the result of centuries of centuries of, of knowing how things progress horizontally and the relationship between nodes horizontally, which allow for a superimposition of these systems through different devices, which is going to be heterophony, then uh, polyphony, and then eventually create harmony. So suddenly she erased about 2,000, 3,000 years of uh, musical evolution and decided that it was harmonic intervals. Uh, the basis, there was no basis for it. It, it was only her intuition. I am here with Dr. Anne Kilmer, Professor Emeritus from uh, UC Berkeley, uh, Professor of Assyriology, and we're going to talk a little bit about life in ancient Mesopotamia. So Anne and I did four pieces with her replica of the Silver Lyre. Um, one was called the Hurrian Cult Song, and one was called the Incantation for Baby Quietening, another the Flood Narrative from the Gilgamesh Epic, and the fourth a Sumerian Drinking Song. So Anne, what do these texts tell us about life in ancient Mesopotamia? The Hurrian Cult Song, of course, comes from Rask Shamra, ancient Ugarit, which is right near the Mediterranean coast. So it's not Mesopotamia proper, but uh, the culture is in many ways much the same. It's sort of a more Western version of it. <clears throat> and of course, it's all part of the cult and the cultic pantheon that existed not only in ancient Sumer and Akkad, but also among the Hittites and the Hurrians and so forth. And um, although the Hurrian culture named its gods with its own names, they are almost, in many cases, exact counterparts to the Babylonian, Mesopotamian, Babylonian pantheon. And in this particular case, one of the main gods of those pantheons was the moon god. And like all gods in the ancient world, uh, they have a consort. There's never just one. There's, if it's a male, it's got a female. If it's a female, it probably has a male, with the possible exception of the goddess Inanna Ishtar. And so in this case, this uh, cult hymn is one of 70 fragments found at that site, all dating to roughly 1400 B.C., and it's a hymn to the moon goddess, and we know it's the moon goddess because her name is in there. The content of the hymn is, in all likelihood, has to do with fertility and childbirth. And that would make sense for the moon goddess to be uh, involved in protecting that sort of, that realm. And um, <clears throat> since our knowledge of Hurrian is imperfect, let me say, we, we know a lot but we don't have as large a vocabulary uh, for Hurrian as we do for Akkadian or for even for Hittite or Sumerian and so forth. So we believe that it's all about uh, asking for, I don't know what it's asking for, it doesn't spe specify they're asking for an easy childbirth, but something of that sort. And so that reflects a typical part of um, ancient Near Eastern religious culture and beliefs, and we don't know for whom the hymns were written, very possibly not for Mrs. Common Man, but maybe only for the priests and priestesses in the temple. I think we know a lot more about temple activities and what the priests were doing and writing and composing, and we don't know that much about the common man or woman.
and what they believed and how they practiced, but they certainly did go to the temples, and the temples in general were well supported by the public. I think, it, it again, it's very reflective of ancient Near Eastern culture in that there are many, many incantations, and most incantations were followed by rituals. And it just happens to be one of many that are devoted to the subject of getting a baby to sleep, or protecting a baby, perhaps. Um, and so this one was just the first one in a, in a collected work of, of incantations about babies and getting them to sleep yeah. that I selected because it was readily available and it lent itself so nicely to a versification. Okay in Akkadian and and in English. And so but it's typical. Many, many incantations, a very large group of texts, many hundreds and hundreds, I don't know if it's thousands, but anyway, certainly hundreds and hundreds of incantations of all kinds are available in in the cuneiform literature. What does uh, the the flood narrative tell us about ancient life? Well, the flood narrative uh, taken from the Tablet 11 of the Gilgamesh epic <clears throat> is probably the best known of the flood narratives, and it's told to the hero of the epic, Gilgamesh, by the actual flood hero himself, who didn't die in the flood, but together with his wife, uh, went to live east of Eden somewhere and were saved, and so it was the only person who had, had lived essentially forever in Gilgamesh wanting to seek eternal life for himself, was very keen on meeting that individual, and so he had an arduous journey to find him, and that's when the flood hero told him exactly the story of the flood in a very dramatic way, as, as you can see if you read the words of the song, very then one morning, just at dawn, and so forth. And the flood hero himself is an interesting character, he is certainly, in at least one tradition, the son of the great creator god Enki in Sumerian, Ea in Akkadian, who was the god of wisdom. And the name of the Babylonian flood hero, and of course we have the flood story in various versions, beginning with the Sumerian version, and in that version his name is Zi-Usudra, which means a life of long days. So all these names are kind of a some of them anyway, a prediction of the fact that he will live forever. He's not okay. going to die like as, as would an, an ordinary human. And um, in the background or the back story to the flood narrative itself, other than the Gilgamesh epic, is the larger picture of why there was a flood, when it was brought, and why it was brought. And for that, uh, the easiest one for me to refer to is the what we call the Atrahasis epic. And Atrahasis is the hero of the Atrahasis epic, and his name means exceeding wise, which of course is an epithet of his father, so he's a chip off the old block of the god of wisdom, Ea Enki. And in that particular epic, uh, it's most interesting for a backstory, because it starts at the beginning of time, before humans were really created, and it starts with the gods. Only the gods existed, and at that early time, before the world was really built up, um, it was just being created, there were, let's say, two major 
social classes of the gods, the workers and the bosses. And the workers had to do all the work, and eventually they became tired of doing all the work, and they went on strike, burnt their tools, they had to build up the mountains and dig all the rivers and lakes and whatever. So eventually they went on strike, and the gods were in turmoil as a result of that, and the solution was to create a worker, not a god, a human worker, who, who was going to do all of this work. And so the creator god, Ea Enki again, together with a mother goddess, set about to create the first human. And there is a very nice uh, Sumerian text that talks about the birth of the first human. And uh, when he's born, his name is Umul, Sumerian Umul. My day is far. Again, similar to Ziyasudra's name, the Sumerian name for the flood hero. So baby Umul is born, and in this sense is essentially the son of, of Ea Enki again, and the mother goddess. And uh, so there the story is the human workers are made, and of course they're made in such a way that all of them could reproduce, because they had to invent not just the first humans who were all five feet five inches tall, but they had to have the propagation of the human race. And so there it was, and it was a big success. The only trouble was that they made too many babies, and there came to be too many humans. And this, this uh, growth of the population upset the gods. They could hear them from heaven. They were noisy. And other stories are related to that theme as well. So finally, the gods became disgusted, and they tried various ways to curtail the population, drought, plague, and, and so forth, <clears throat> and eventually uh, the gods decided that there must be, well not all the gods perhaps, but the main gods decided there should be a final solution to the people problem. And that's when it was, the decision was made to send the Great Flood. But the, the person who ends up to be the Flood hero, who was really the son of Ea Enki, is warned. And being warned, he's able to prepare and is even told how to build an unsinkable ark. And that's the background of uh, the, flood, the flood story and the flood narrative, which plays just a part of the Gilgamesh epic, which has other, other goals in its storytelling. Finally, the Sumerian drinking song. What does that tell us about ancient life? Well, the Sumerian drinking song is really part of a larger composition which is a hymn to the beer goddess. And it's, it's, it's a great hymn. It tells us a little bit about beer and brewing techniques. And as you hear from the song, it gives us the name of some of the, the vats that were used in the beer brewing process. And tells us also that the Sumerians definitely liked beer. And that it was clearly a very important uh, a brew that was a, a commodity, even perhaps a staple of sorts. And uh, there is wine, especially we know more about wine in the later period, but already in Sumerian times, in the earliest texts, we have beer. And of course, the word for beer is kosh, and that's why we introduced into our composition for the Sumerian drinking song the refrain of kasha, kasha, kosh, and the beery beer, or whatever. And um, 
So there, there it was, as part of a larger uh, Sumerian hymn to the beer goddess.